there's this uh, sort of duality of deception. Um, lying gets us into trouble and lying keeps us out of trouble. Lying causes pain and lying prevents pain. Lying is lazy and lying is laborious. Mm. Lying is hurtful and lying is kind, mm. I have found. And to me, the the important part lives in that and. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And knowing, knowing your intention. Um, and because it is easy to just, I think a lot of us, that's a common thing in your 20s is to when you stop paying attention to the lies and that you're told and that you're telling others and suddenly you look up and you don't recognize yourself anymore. Hi, this is the Hidden World Podcast and I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Today, my guest is Rebecca Holler. Rebecca is a journalist, a researcher, and a consultant. She is also the author of a website called Lies I've Told My Therapist. Rebecca joins us today to talk to us about the phenomena of lying, the lies we tell ourselves, the lies we tell other people, and the lies we've been told. I think every one of you will hear yourselves in some part of what Rebecca and I share today. Welcome to this week's episode of The Hidden World. I really wanted to talk to you about, I think, what is maybe a, a particular expertise you have on why we lie to ourselves to each other, to our therapists. <laughs> um, you know, what purpose that serves um, and what to do about it. Mm-hmm. But I think I'd like you to start at the beginning with your okay. own story and how you even came to consciousness around the lies you were telling yourself and your own therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, been quite a quite a process but let's see so it started a couple years back I had I was about a year into working for myself I had quit my job the year before and without my noticing there had been this slow unraveling of my identity and realizing how much of it had been attached to my career And I started to get frustrated when I would see friends, be networking, and people would only ask me about my latest vacation or about where I got the dress I was wearing in that picture I posted. And I, I, at the time, internalized that so much to be, oh, these people don't think that I'm working and busy because I'm doing it for myself and I don't work for some big corporation anymore. I no longer believe that to be the case because what I very quickly realized was that's what I was putting out into the universe via social media. Mm-hmm. You know, I was putting out pictures from beautiful locations, you know, working on the beach and bragging about it. And so that's what people saw and that's what people 
whether they want to or not perceive to be the truth. Mm. And so I was responsible for putting that out there. So around the same time, I had been approached by a, a potential client to do research for who it was a nonprofit and they were looking to do research around therapy and vulnerability and sort of the power of vulnerability specific to uh, inner city kids in Baltimore. And I thought, as I was putting together the proposal, I thought, I am a huge advocate of therapy. I've spent nearly two decades in therapy, but vulnerability, I wasn't so sure about. <laughs> to me, that seemed like, mm, do you really want to be vulnerable? That is that really a superpower? Um, so I thought as I was putting this together in order to be able to do the research properly, I, want, I needed to test the waters myself. And so I went to the place that most of us are the least vulnerable, which is Instagram. And I started, uh, it, it started as a, a weekly sort of series, I guess, of posts that I called Lies I've Told My Therapist. And I thought it was just a catchy title. And I hadn't quite realized the degree to which I had been lying to my therapist yet, but I would put up posts and it, it started to open me up a good bit. And I, they weren't very revealing in hindsight. They're actually more lyrical and poetic, I think, but it was cracking something inside of me open. And that is around when I, I realized I, because people were shocked by the things that I was putting out there, even though, again, I wasn't being all that revealing. Um, and it, it, it took, I took a hit on it because it, it was personally opening me up, but I was then starting to get self-conscious about everyone's reaction to it. And why is this such a big deal that I'm being so open and candid? And that's when I started really, it started to really hit me that I, it started very literally with me realizing, okay, I do go to therapy but I often lie in therapy. Mm. And I always like to point out that it's lying through omission rather than fabrication. Right. And it's a lot more of, um, I'm fine. Everything's great. Mm -hmm. I'm getting enough sleep. Mm -hmm. Everything's perfect. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, so in my eyes, it was, it was really harmless. And, but as I started to unpack that, so that's sort of where it started for me was realizing the lies that I tell others through both Instagram and in therapy. Mm -hmm. And it made me a little bit more aware to notice when I was doing it and sort of catch myself. Um, and then I, I sort of the, what I consider the second tier was the, the, the lies that others have told me. And this is where I stopped writing the Instagram post. I stopped writing anything publicly altogether. And my, my mom had given me a, a book, The Four Agreements. Mm. And in it, I think it's the very first couple pages where the author talks about uh, human domestication. <laughs> <laughs> and it started going through how we're this result of our parents' belief systems, our school's belief systems, our the religion we grew up in, those belief systems, and how basically over time in our very, from a very young age, we're just stripped of us and we're sort of molded into 
something else. Um, and that to me was so terrifying and eye-opening and it made me start to question everything. Mm -hmm. And it, it was, it was definitely, I'd, I'd say more of the, the painful <laughs> stage mm -hmm. of, um, of just truly questioning everything from, you know, what I ate for breakfast and why I ate it to how I acted in front of one group of people versus another. Mm. Um, and then the, the third phase was, was once I sort of realized those forces was that I, the biggest lies of them all were the lies that I was telling myself. Mm. And that came about through a significant amount of traveling by myself internationally. Mm. I just hit the road and I was in search of something that I didn't know what I was in search of. But what that helped me see is the things that I tell myself that are just blatantly untrue about mm. myself. Mm. And that's when it became something bigger and I started telling these stories more in, in longer form um, on my website. Wow. And then what was the reaction you got to those stories that you told on your website? Very similar to the reaction that I got to the Instagram post, I heard from a lot of people sort of offline or um, privately about how almost like me too, people were coming and saying, you know, I didn't go through that exact same situation that you're describing with your family. I went through something completely different, but what feelings you're describing, I completely understand. And it, that resonates with me and I haven't been able to articulate it that way before. Mm. And that to me was just as it was with the Instagram post with the, the website, I, that's turned into my favorite part of all of this. Um, you know, people love to say that misery loves company mm. and I don't actually believe that. I think that lonely loves company. I think misery just wants to know that it's not alone in how it feels. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, how that is, that is a revelation. I think mm -hmm. probably for a lot of people listening, the way you just said that, um, it's, we come so hard, hardwired to be mirrored for people to see our truths and hold them really well with us. Right. And maybe that's connected to why we start lying to ourselves, mm -hmm. to other people or mm -hmm. to our social media network or whatever. Because mm -hmm. um, the truths weren't mirrored and held well. Right. And, and we start to distort the truth in ourselves a bit in order to be accepted or loved. Exactly. I think that's exactly it for me. I, you know, I went back to, because lying in and of itself has such a, a negative connotation, right? And so I went back to thinking through, you know, we're taught as children very early, lying is bad, don't lie. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, as teenagers, you sort of learn, well, sometimes I need to lie to stay out of trouble. It's protective um, or protecting others. 
And then I, my theory is that we just get so good at it that we were almost like our own lie detector test and we fall asleep at the wheel on actually administering the test. Mm -hmm. We stop questioning, we get busy, we get productive, we get successful, we are paying attention to things other than what we're actually saying and believing to ourselves. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, we start operating out of a lot of unconsciousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of reactivity in the decisions that we're making. Right. And I think that you you hit it. I think belonging and, you know, everyone has had that moment in most, you know, in our awkward young phases where you say something that is just completely awkward and inappropriate or not the right thing to say. And then you learn to stop saying things and you, you kind of cut your own voice off. And when you do that, at least in my experience, I found that I, that's when I started telling myself other stories. Hmm. What do you mean by other stories? So other stories in almost trying to mold myself or put a, a, a mask on myself to be deemed more acceptable or um, part of the group, um, to never stir the pot, to, uh, you know, you're almost making a, a character or caricature of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a persona. Mm-hmm. Or, or many personae, personae. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And it gets exhausting trying to keep up with all of them. And that's when I think the, that's when I, I believe it's probably the most common time when people start to pay attention to the fact that those personas even exist is when it gets so exhausting to carry around and to, um, you know, I used to, I, to, to joke about how I would go into therapy often with a, with notes. And mm-hmm. I always thought I was being a, you know, a good therapy client when in reality I was just trying to stick to the script I was actually writing the script for myself and then trying to stick to it so that I didn't lose you know I didn't come undone or I didn't uh I didn't actually I wasn't actually honest wow oh god I relate to that um I, when I was um, in late elementary school, I was pretty severely bullied by um, a couple of girls in my grade. And um, it, you know, the, the pain of that, the shame and the pain and the fear um, was really altered the course of my life, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, And I did start to try to distort or pretzel myself into something more acceptable that would not get hurt that way. Um, And not just like rejected and left out, but abused, you know? So it was, it felt like necessary, a vital part of surviving psychologically and socially was to become what people would either want or ignore 
you know? Um, and it, it wasn't really until after college that I really came to terms with how much social anxiety I had because that strategy for staying safe socially was so exhausting. Mm-hmm. And um, I felt very lonely, mm-hmm. even though I had a lot of friends because I wasn't really being intimate with anyone because I was afraid to offer my whole true self to someone because what if it got abused again? Right. Um, And so when I figured out that I was suffering and I needed help, I went to therapy too. And I went in with notes for almost a year. And then I remember one, at one point, my therapist made a, like a kind of, like a little tiny aggressive joke about it. She was like, anything else in your notes? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it caught me by surprise that she had even noticed mm-hmm. the notes. And, right. and I started sure. to think about like why I needed those and what I was trying to defend and and protect against even in therapy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. You're like, do not all of your clients bring notes? <laughs> I did. I asked and she said, no, no one. <laughs> right. Right. And then that's another instance where you're, you, it, it, in my case, I would then have back then I would have then had to schedule time to memorize my notes before (laughs) just to fit in in therapy (laughs) that's so funny (laughs) it's terrible (laughs) I gave I gave it up after that um but I I started to be really upset in therapy very visibly upset which I think was actually the point right (laughs) to bring the real emotional experience into the room is the point right Right. Yeah, I, for me, when I was thinking about vulnerability, I, I, I came up with what I called the, I had an armor and alibi approach to vulnerability. Mm. So I would only ever be vulnerable if my armor started to get too heavy and I was exhausted and it would just come out or as an alibi, if I did something or said something and I needed as almost an excuse for my behavior, Mm. I would be a little bit more vulnerable. And I remember when when I first came clean to my therapist, I, I still had notes that day, but I had notes that were way realer than Mm. previous notes. It was, it was not the list of accomplishments and achievements that I had uh, been powering through. It was a list of feelings and um, things that I had experiences that I just couldn't make sense of, or that had hurt me. And it was just a very real list. Um, and something that I learned later in researching this idea of lying in therapy was this idea of a, a, a doorknob comment, hmm. which oh, yeah. is, 
<laughs> yeah. probably uh, <laughs> quite familiar with where people would, and I did this myself, um, you know, you would wait through the, you'd go through therapy and you would say all of these lovely things about yourself and then you would leave. And as you were leaving, you'd say something just hinting at being real. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and it, it, it made me laugh at the time because I did exactly that. You know, the time, be- the session before the session that I came clean, right as I was leaving, I, I said, you know, basically that I, I felt that I had a marathon of thoughts that was happening in my head and I just needed them to slow down. I needed, um, and you know, it was a metaphor, but it was also the, probably the realest thing that I'd said. And my doctor sort of looked at me and he, he suggested meditation, which in turn turned out to be a, uh, one of the greatest gifts of all time. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did that as I was walking out the door. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I call those doorway confessionals. Yes. (laughs) And I'm sure from your standpoint, you're thinking the next session is going to be interesting. (laughs) Well, I, I always have to remind myself that, um, that then it's my job to hold that the whole week and try to start with it because, you know, the reason the truth is so hard to share with someone else is because it's hard to hold in ourselves. And if someone else can hold it and show you that they can hold it and that they're okay and they're still connected to you, then it gets a little easier. Absolutely. And that was, that was a big part of what led up to me coming clean in therapy was um, I had started to tell very close friends of mine sort of one at a time what I was actually going through and what I was experiencing and being super vulnerable. And each time I did that, I just felt this weight lifted off of me. And it, it was profoundly helpful to start that process of opening up and being more open. I mean, I just, I was a vault before <laughs> that you were, time. So you were a what? I, was, I was a vault. Oh. Everything was locked inside, never cried, never really showed emotion. It was just a, uh, nothing, things went in, nothing ever came out. And so as I started to have those conversations, one, it brought me that relief it also helped me to feel less alone because I'd say these things, you know, these feelings or experiences I'd be going through and it, I would think they were the most wildly unique scenarios or situations and come to find that almost everything, I could say the craziest things and somebody would relate in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and because it's so much more relaxing to have relationships where you can be yourself and tell the truth, I think practicing that with friends um, is such a vital part of mental health. And it also kind of pretty quickly shows you who can hang and who can't. <laughs> 
<laughs> for sure. Which can be painful, but but clarifying I, in a meaningful way. Absolutely. Yeah. The other day I, I um, said something um, to an acquaintance. I made a, a joke about um, what I called a marital spat that my husband and I had had. And she just kind of giggled nervously and, and then found a way to kind of walk away. And I think 10 years ago, that would have made me feel really insecure, confused. And instead I thought, oh, good to know, you know? Mm-hmm. 100%. And that, definitely. And that, that I'd say happens increasingly. I, I, I like to say that the, the truth, uh, the, the truth is a trick and that it, all these great things come out of it. However, I, it would to this day be easier to not be so truthful all the time. Really? Um, and because of the, there, there are, because of the situation you're describing, because then I, I think through the reaction of other people mm-hmm. or um, the, and it, I, it's a constant need to remind myself that it's more about them than it is about me, of course. Uh, but it, you have to be sort of active, yeah. actively reminding yourself that. Yes, yes. Um, and that was like a low stakes situation. Mm-hmm. So, but in higher stakes situations, you know, if you're trying to tell the truth to someone you really want to be connected to and they can't hold it with you, that is harder. Right. Right. Yeah. It's difficult. And, and you, it's in those low stakes scenarios, it, it is a little bit easier to make that mental note and move on. But there, there have certainly been friendships and relationships that have changed over the last few years mm-hmm. um, or just you start to pay such closer attention to who you wanna be around and who you want to, who makes you feel safe when you mm-hmm. are being truthful. I, I really like that you keep saying that you came clean to your therapy. <laughs> um, and, and I'm curious about, to the degree that you're comfortable explaining what that meant, you know, you can be as vague as you want, um, but what that looked like and then how that, um, or if it transformed the way you relate to yourself. Absolutely. I, so that first time that I, after I described the, uh, the marathon of thoughts in that, that next session, I was, uh, completely broken. I had had a panic attack the day before, which helped me forced me to pay attention to things I needed to pay attention to. And in that instance, I think the fact that it happened the day before I was going to see my doctor, I, it, it, I didn't, I was no longer had a choice in 
mm-hmm. telling the truth or not. So I went in and I went through a whole host of things. I went through, I was having, and, and it, it was all things that had to do with me, but that were reflecting elsewhere, right? So again, I was a year into working for myself. So I suddenly had no idea who I was. Uh, I wasn't sure what I wanted to be doing. I hadn't dealt with a lot of things having to do with my parents' divorce years earlier. Um, I was, my marriage was in a not great place because I was in a not great place. And I didn't, I hadn't been releasing that or, or even acknowledging it until that moment. Mm-hmm. And so I had all kinds of things that I had to start to <laughs> break through one by one. Um, but all roads led back to me, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I was op- open about the panic attacks. I was the insecurities. There was a lot of imposter syndrome. There was, you know, financial it, concerns and could I continue to manage a business? It was, I, it was just, a, it was a very lonely time. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I think lonely was the first word on my list that day. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that I realized I was lonely and I was surrounded by people. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't a, I wasn't a, a shut in. I, in the middle of the woods, I, I was lonely, but constantly surrounded by people. I was completely disconnected mm-hmm. from others. And I didn't, I didn't, couldn't articulate that at the time, but I didn't know how to get that back. And I was confusing. uh, I had this realization that I didn't know the difference between thoughts and feelings. Mm, And that was one that, that we worked on right away. And, you know, I was, I was then, I was confusing relationships that I was having with other people as you know, I might have a connection to someone and read into it and think that it's something way more than it is because I didn't realize how low my, my connection tank had gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, it, it was truly uh, years worth <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, but like it started rolling out. It all just started rolling out. And I mean, I like, I, I laugh about it now, but I, it opened up this whole host of things. You know, I went to, um, it, it opened up with even other types of doctors. You know, I would, I had a physical, I hadn't had one of those in years. And I started you know, saying all these things to my, to my primary care physician and, you know, things I was concerned about or issues. And, you know, she even pointed out to, that I had never been that vocal or uh, had that much to share before. Mm-hmm. Um, I would do the same thing, you know, your dentist asked you if you have any concerns or any issues that you've had in the, you know, like, of course not. I, I floss twice a day, not just before I come in here twice a year. <laughs> um, and so I just started like, it, just little things like that. You know, I started saying, no, I, I don't, I haven't been regularly flossing and mm-hmm. inconsequential things or, you know, knock on wood, hopefully inconsequential things. Um, but I was just able to tell I think the truth. I was able to tell the truth and the 
as the more that I've dug into, because that's a common question I get from people is, you know, why would you pay someone to lie to them? And again, I think there's that important distinction that it's not fabrication, it's, it's omission, it's concealing, it's mm-hmm. even embellishing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it all roads lead back to guilt, shame, fear. Yep. And it, it's once you start to chip away at that a little bit, um, it makes it easier to, you know, uh, to the dentist example, I am not the only person who has lied and said that I floss every day. <laughs> and I think that the dentist understands that or the uh, primary care physician, you know, I have more than two glasses of wine a week. Yeah, um. <laughs> they know that. Of the course, of it's course. So funny, we all, everybody that has to do any kind of intake where people report alcohol consumption, if someone says three to four glasses of wine a week, it becomes seven to 10 in my head. Right, <laughs> right. I understand. And so, you know, it, it was just little things like that where I just started to, um, which it, it be, I, be, I felt like in some cases it sounds a little cheesy, but I almost felt like I suddenly was, I, I had gotten to know myself a lot better mm-hmm. and I was becoming an advocate for myself in those small inconsequential ways, but that that was a big deal for me at yeah. the time. Oh, it's such a big deal. Um, because so much of truth telling is about advocacy. And, and not just for ourselves, but for like the truth of our relationships or, um, you know, I was taught implicitly, I think, by the culture um, and, and maybe by my family um, and my family's culture. And then just by the um, power of observation that if there's a problem in a relationship, you're supposed to ignore it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And either, you know, pretend it's not there and carry on as if everything's fine or spend less time with the person or, I don't know, start talking shit on them. It's like, those are, (laughs) those seem like the avenues that get kind of laid out. Right. And um, I find that intolerable. Mm-hmm. And that like p- part of telling the truth is saying, hey, something feels off. Right. You know, I just want to check in. Mm-hmm. If there's any feedback you have for me, I would be open to it. Right. Um. you know, or, hey, this hurt me. Right. Because you want to give someone a chance to understand that and either apologize or explain that you had your head up your ass, you know, (laughs) because what was going on with them was, you know, I mean, this has happened to me a number of times in sitting on both sides of this fence where, there's some neglect mm-hmm. in your relationship. 
and I either I take it personally or someone else takes it personally. Right. But the situation is that the person who's being neglectful is overwhelmed. Right. By what, you know, difficulty in their marriage or with a child or with their job or with their health or with their mental health. And um, to be able to talk about it is, I, I don't know, it feels like the key to being securely connected to other people. Right. I think that's so true. And that is, you know, I, I laugh with friends sometimes that we're, we're taught algebra, but we're not taught interpersonal communications and relationship management, uh, which would be wildly helpful at a young age. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Emotional literacy and interpersonal skills should be core curriculum in school. Mm -hmm. And it is the least um, invested in aspect of learning. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's when, when I first talked to my therapist about not knowing the difference between feelings and thoughts one of the, the, the tools I was given was the feelings wheel, mm -hmm. which is beautiful and colorful. And there are all kinds of options. And that was how I worked through that myself was trying to figure out, okay, this is what just happened. The fact of it. <laughs> and then this is how I feel about it. And being able to pinpoint it and it, it felt a little silly and elementary and it you know there were a lot of times where i wished i'd been that had been a class i'd taken you know mm -hmm. in elementary school but it has been this very helpful tool that even i mean you know early on in the pandemic you know it's my husband and i both working from home and you're asked how's your day and that's such, such a, a throwaway question, right? And it, we started trying to ask, how do you feel? Mm. How does that make you feel? And I'd get the wheel out and we'd pinpoint, <laughs> which can sometimes be eye-opening because it's things yeah. that you hadn't, uh, hadn't really thought through. Yes. I would love for my husband to um, have a feelings wheel in his head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have to print it out and, you know, put it in front of him. <laughs> so this was a bit of an identity crisis for you. It was a full-blown identity crisis. I'm curious about like how you put yourself back together since it sounds like you put yourself back together honestly, you know, sincerely without cracks. Um, yes. And what, what that looks like. So for me, it was, I tend to be a go hard or go home person. There's <laughs> not a lot of in between, uh, which in this case turned out to be very handy. Um, so I, I got to a place where I, because I was questioning everything, which is I am a I'm a researcher. I ask questions of other people for a living. I 
am, I, I consider myself a recovering journalist. I used to ask questions to tell other people's stories. It becomes a lot more challenging in my experience at least to do that digging into myself. And so I knew I had to go hard or go home. Um, and there was really no way around that. And I had the luxury and the privilege to have the time and the resources to do that mm. and didn't want to waste that. It's funny in hindsight because, hello, identity crisis. I wanted to keep my airline mileage status. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's the, the end of that year. Mm -hmm. I booked a 48-hour trip to Hong Kong by myself. And I wasn't, I was doing it because I needed to get out. I had to, I was, I was, I, I wasn't running away from anything. I firmly believe I was running towards something. I just didn't know what it was. Hmm. So while I was in Hong Kong on the ground for 48 hours, on my last day, I went to uh, there, this, this island where there's, there's this big Buddha. Mm -hmm and sort of a, a tourist destination. And I was, it was before I was heading back to the airport to catch my flight home. And I, it's funny now, but I, I wandered down what is actually called the wisdom path. Wow. And I went, I didn't know where it was going. And I, which is such a metaphor, but I got to the end and there was this beautiful sculpture with these Chinese inscriptions that I didn't understand. Um, it turned out to be the Heart Sutra. And I couldn't read them, of course, but I had this almost, this definitely spiritual experience there where I, while I was traveling, I was realizing that I like myself so much more when I travel. Mm. And so that was this first piece of the puzzle, if you will. I'm so carefree. I don't need any plans. I will walk by a restaurant and just pop in or decide to go visit a big Buddha on a random island. Mm. I am the most easygoing version of myself. Whereas at home, if someone changes a plan two hours before, I lose my mind. Mm. And I, cause I've been set on that plan. And for whatever reason, while I was, on the wisdom path, something that came to, came to me was that I, I can't be one without another, that there isn't a good version of me or a bad version of me. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking through, you know, I wouldn't, I could take part of that travel me home when I returned. I could bring some of home me on the road. And that for me was just this really eye-opening first experience experience where I thought, huh, maybe there's not something wrong with me. Um, maybe I'm not broken. Uh, maybe there's nothing I need to fix, mm. uh, which was for me just a revelatory reckoning. Mm. Um, so that was, that was one of the first biggies. And after that trip, then of course I was addicted to <laughs> learning more about myself and and I, I had this false sense that I was on, you know, some scavenger hunt around the world. Um, but what I knew after that trip was that I wasn't done yet. And now I have the luxury of hindsight knowing that it's never done. 
but it was all about this, this notion of paying more attention. Um, so that by this point, this is year two of my consulting business. And I threw out all of my spreadsheets with all of my KPIs and my goals and you name it. And I, I wrote down uh, these three lines from a Mary Oliver poem that I love. Uh, it's, it's, she calls it rules for living a life. Mm. Pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. Hmm. You know, it, I'd think back to childhood and I used to, from a very young age, I did ballet and tap and jazz. And I loved it until at some point I just didn't anymore. And I didn't have the, um, I didn't know that I had the permission or the, the, the ability to ask to quit. Mm. And so I used to get these headaches and these stomach aches every day that I had ballet. Mm. And it sort of became this running joke in the family that if it was ballet day, I was going to have a stomach ache. And looking back on that now, I realized that was my body physically telling me something. You know, this is not where you need to be. Um, and eventually, I, when I did quit, I, the headaches and stomach aches went away. Mm. And so a lot of this for me has been unlearning basically everything hmm. and then relearning how to pay attention to those little things that over time we just stop paying attention to hmm. you know how something makes us feel yeah and it sounds like you had to or could both um get out of your ordinary environment in, in order to set yourself up to have to pay attention. Because when you're in a foreign place and all you have is yourself that's familiar and there's, there's very little around you that you can project your stuff onto. Exactly. Because it's new and um, bewildering, <laughs> you know? And um, you can't hide in a routine or a habit or a habit of relationship. It does shake things up a bit and, and force you to look inside. I, I know, and you've said this, that we're talking about a kind of, of privilege and luxury here. Um, and yet I do think that you can get outside of your normal habits in really inexpensive ways too yes um and like if your habit is to always watch netflix at night and have a glass of wine what if instead you did some gentle yoga or sat outside quietly yes or went for a walk without your devices you know, yes. that is one way to go, oh, huh, Who, who's here? What am I telling myself? Exactly. What am I feeling right now? I, I had written in my notes uh, on the flight back from Amsterdam two years ago, what it was that I love about travel. And so to your point, I, it was trying a new coffee 
place every morning. It was walking everywhere. It was uh, sitting outside for dinner, even when it's cold and just bundling up. It was uh, going to museums. It was all really simple, basic things that could be applied anywhere which was a, a big game changer for me when I did get back from that trip from Amsterdam, because I did truly know at that point, it was, it was, I could not continue to hop on international flights every time I needed to get to know myself better. Mm. So I started walking everywhere mm. and booking that extra time to walk, whether it was freezing um, or, or not. And I sat outside and worked outside a lot. And I would go to restaurants by myself mm. or go sit at the bar and take a book. Mm. And it was all of these little things that were, were so seemingly inconsequential, but it was so easy to replicate at home mm. and to make it feel like in some ways I was a tourist in my own city. Mm. And, you know, it was, it was a really eye-opening and magical realization. Mm. Um, and you're also kind of talking about being a, a tourist in your own inner landscape. Yes. And just trying to get the outer experience to mirror the inner attitude so that it's a kind of congruent, seamless approach. Right to your life. Right, right. And it, it be also became a good way to manage uncomfortable feelings. You know, if, if my husband and I, as you called it, a marital spat, if, if we had some silly spat, then I would, instead of getting into it, which is what I would normally be sort of wired to do, I would say, I need to go for a walk and I'll be back in a little bit. And I'd be able to go for a walk and maybe take a book and go sit on a bench somewhere and just take a breather. Mm -hmm. And it was really those, um, so many of those, those they're not, this, I, I don't want to call it a skill, but just small behaviors add up enormously. And early into the pandemic, I, I put a question on my Instagram asking people, you know, what's what's like a small joy that you've experienced. And I, the researcher in me had desperately wished I'd had the responses, you know, a month earlier mm -hmm. because the responses were all sitting and savoring my coffee in the morning, mm -hmm. uh, being able to spend more time with my family. They were all these really small things that, that add up to a much more enjoyable and pleasant experience life experience. Yes. Yes. Amen. I want to shift gears just a little bit and ask you what you think the most common lies we tell ourselves, be, like be they lies of omission or um, distraction or embellishment. So I, some of the ones that I've written out before are, these are the inconsequential ones. I'm fine. Everything's great. Nothing's wrong. No, I'm not mad. 
I've been so busy. It must have gone to spam. It was on sale. It was delicious. It looks great. Just one glass a night with dinner. I have read the terms and conditions. <laughs> and the, those are all the, the, when anytime anyone says that they're, that they don't lie, they're lying. <laughs> um, and so you know, those are some of the smaller things that we say, but I, I think that we, I think that lying can have a place. Mm -hmm. um, I, I always like to caveat that I still lie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but to me, it's, it's being aware of the lie. Mm -hmm. So if I'm, if I want to come up with an excuse to not go to some group gathering or um, some social event, uh, I might be, I might come up with a lie to protect myself. Um, and for me, or the, yes. And to me, it's the power in n noticing the lie and then sort of sitting with it for a second and making sure I know deep down, I don't have to publicize why, but I have to know deep down why I told the lie. Um, but I think that I think that we we all tell lies about things to make ourselves look better to again back to the beginning to to fit in um, to be socially acceptable to to get a job. Yeah. Um, I think there's there's any number of things. Uh, I think a lot of it comes down to protection, self protection. Mm -hmm. um, I think I may have said this to you before. Um, and even if so, it probably bears repeating, but I'm pretty sure the philosopher, Hannah Arendt, do you know her? She said, um, I will stop lying when there is no more patriarchy and no more hierarchy. Mm, that's good. Like there is a time and a place to keep mm -hmm. yourself safe, to not create um, chaos or hurt feelings or, um, right. you know, or to, or to sometimes be kind by not asking somebody to meet you where they can't. Right. Um, yeah. So there's a time and a place, but to do it consciously. Right. Exactly. Be honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. Exactly. As you're saying about why. Right. Right. There's, there's this, the sort of duality of deception um, lying gets us into trouble and lying keeps us out of trouble. Lying causes pain and lying prevents pain. Mm. Lying is lazy and lying is laborious. Mm. Lying is hurtful and lying is kind, mm. I have found. And to me, the, 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 the important part lives in that and. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And knowing knowing your intention um, and because it is easy to just, I think a lot of us, that's a common thing in your twenties is to, when you stop paying attention to the lies and that you're told and that you're telling others and suddenly you look up and you don't recognize yourself anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I do think that the lies that we tell ourselves are the slipperiest. Mm -hmm. And in part, because some of it is lies we've been told that we've internalized Mm -hmm. as truths. And so we really don't know, not consciously, right, that it is dishonest. Right, right. And in those instances, I think that I, I have found that's where it requires the both the curiosity and an ability to sit with it mm-hmm. and take the time to be curious and ask, you know, why do I believe that or why, where did this belief come from? Is this even my belief? Does it belong to me? Mm-hmm. And it, it, you know, it does take time and it's something that takes practice and um, it. It, it's hard work. <laughs> it can be exhausting. <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's, it is important work. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's liberating. It's freedom potentially. Mm-hmm. But that I think freedom. Uh, how do I want to say this? It's like the truth will set you free, but first it will have its way with you. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you, you likely will not emerge with the same sense of yourself that you started with. And while that is frightening, it is ultimately liberating. Absolutely. That's spot on, absolutely. And it, it, the painful part is the leaving things and pieces of yourself and your relationships behind. And it, you learn pretty quickly what can continue on and what has to, what you have to cut ties with, um, which is, in my opinion, the toughest part of it, because there's always a moment where you think, okay, I'm a completely different person. How do I now fit into that relationship? Or how do I identify with that piece of myself? And if it doesn't fit anymore, it doesn't fit, which is really hard. Because then you you go through a grief process and it's, uh, you know, there was a, a period of time where grief, I felt like I was just constantly grieving and it was, tricky for me because I didn't know at the time that you could grieve things other than the loss of a human life mm-hmm. and that realization and it, again it was another one that was somewhat handy coming into a global pandemic because I you see people whose weddings are getting canceled their um, birthday parties are getting canceled holidays get together all these things and and I think that that's that for me is one of the hardest parts of it is the giving yourself the time and the space to grieve these things and these um, experiences. And I, that I don't think we are trained for. And I, that's been top of mind for me, you know, throughout 2020 and now 2021 is just the amount of, of 
it, it, it took me a decade to get over something, you know, back in the past that I just never dealt with, you know, in the case of my, my parents' divorce, I was in the, a, an adult child of divorce and I didn't know that I was allowed to grieve that. And so a decade later, I'm dealing with that and it, um, or many years later, and it, there was, no one ever told me, hey, you know, you could sit down and you could, you can feel the feelings about this and they're all valid. Um, it, it's those endings that, and it's both cliche, but true that every ending is a beginning. And I think as soon as you have one ending, you realize that. And it, every time you, there's another, it becomes easier to accept and sort of surrender. Unless you truly grieve it, you're playing like whack-a-mole trying to keep it down. Yes. And whatever yeah. your hammer is in that whack-a-mole game, you know, is is the kind of symptom or the vice or the, or it really winds up being the instrument of pain that you keep right. um, landing upon yourself. Right, right. And in, in that example of, my parents divorced, I used, my hammer was work and my career. Um, and that's probably the most socially acceptable uh, of the uh, coping mechanisms. And so I was getting awards for it and I was working around the clock and, and not that I didn't enjoy it and love it. It was, it was wonderful at the time, but it was, I was putting all my cards into my career, which is why then years later, when I quit my job, I had no idea that work was my crutch. If something hard or difficult was happening, I would just work more and accomplish more and achieve more, which are when done in a healthy way, great. Uh, but then when I quit my job, I realized that I had kicked the crutch that I was using to walk through life out from under myself. And it, it, it was very similar to having to learn how to walk on my own again. If I wasn't tied to X organization or X job title, then who, who am I? What am I? Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, this is so good. You know, that, that point about using work as, you know, the hammer that you were playing whack-a-mole with, um, and that being socially acceptable and getting rewarded for that. Um, I think that that is incredibly common and it doesn't, it's not always work, it often is. Um, but you know, it's sometimes, I mean, these things can be so slippery because it can be like philanthropy, <laughs> you know, or, um, you know, being a good fill in the blank, mm -hmm. 
um, partner, mother, friend, neighbor, and um, host. Right. Hostess. Um, and and yet we're we're still avoiding ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, or avoiding something. Even this year, I have noticed um, I have thrown myself more into work than normal. And I think it's one of the ways that I've responded to crisis mm-hmm. is to um, try to ground myself in purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and that's fine. But if I get unconscious about it, it gets a little unbalanced. Right. And then I wind up not taking care of myself as well as I need to, or not um, making enough time for my marriage or my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then the, the system gets a little, the family system gets a little symptomatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's harder. It's harder to shift out of your strategy for avoiding the grief, the anxiety, the truth of, of how hard this time is, for example, um, into facing it. Right. Sitting right. with it, telling the truth, you know, acknowledging the grief, acknowledging the stress, acknowledging the difficulty, um, and the strain, you know, on our home lives, our, our relationships, our daily level of satisfaction, um, how safe our kids feel. And, and that's harder to, it's harder to be with that truth. And so it's just very easy and it does, it can seem even right, you know, to get caught up fixing. Right, right. And it, uh, that same year that I was doing all of this travel, I did this writing workshop that I I'd sort of made this, this move where, or discovery where, you know, I wanted to be a writer and I was going to be a writer. And so I saw this writing workshop and I didn't really pay any attention to any of the other details, such as the fact that it was being hosted at a a mindfulness center or that it was being hosted by psychologists, not writers and uh, psychologists who have books. And uh, it wasn't until I got there that I sort of realized that I was actually basically in group therapy for the weekend uh, where I would get to do a little writing while I was there. Um, but while I was there, something that I, I learned that was this big aha moment for me was, you know, early on, they talked about, uh, resilience and, you know, asked the group who here feels as if they're a resilient person and everyone's hands shot up. And then we sort of started breaking down healthy resilience and unhealthy resilience. And that's when I was like, oh my gosh, this is not the, the, the ways that I have, always fancied myself a resilient person have not always been healthy Mm. modes. Um, And that for me was a, a, an eye-opening one because it, it helped me to start seeing 
the, that difference, that nuanced difference between the healthy versus the unhealthy, whether it's resilience or coping. And something that I, I've likened over the years, I've likened it to a speakeasy. So, you know, you'd go, when I'm feeling off or something's just not right, I, I metaphorically see myself at this door and I can go around it. I can go around the building and around the block. It's the longer way, but it's, it's definitely easier. <laughs> um, or I can come up with, a, as you would at a speakeasy, you'd need the password to get in. And for me, the, that password is what is it? What's the feeling? What am I feeling? And sometimes I, I guess and it's wrong and you know when it's wrong. And then I, I imagine myself going inside and sitting with the feeling and spending time in that stillness and trying to understand where it's come from, what, what its purpose is. <laughs> And once I've actually spent time with it, which again, it's much easier to just walk the longer way around, but I'm eventually going to bang up against that door again. And I know that. So I have found that just being able to name it and claim that feeling and then sit with it until I feel that I have a better grasp of it. Mm-hmm. And then I can move on. Mm. And what I have found with that is that it helps me to, there's, to me, I, you know, I spent a lot of that, that year of travel so focused on awareness. Mm-hmm. I became hypervigilant, super aware of everything and anything and things that did not matter at all. Um, but it took me a little longer to realize the second piece of that puzzle is the the awareness is the first, the second is the acceptance. And in that is where I, I learned that it, you need both. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I have found that when I am both aware of whatever the feeling is and accepting it, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm not trying to turn sadness into joy. Mm-hmm. I'm just accepting it as is those are the instances where I most rarely come back to that same yes feeling yes and that has been that's I I feel that way about I haven't had a panic attack in years after a year of having frequent ones and I similarly I can sense in my body when you know for me it starts in my hands and I can sense it coming on. And then as soon as I'm aware of it and I accept, you know, that it might happen, it goes away. And I feel like those are instances where something's just trying to get our attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, for me, the, the awareness piece was really important because it got my attention, but that acceptance was equally as powerful because it helped me to actually let it go yeah and just let it be not try to i have always had an issue with books that are labeled Mm self-help um (laughs) or because it it, there's an implication that something's wrong and that it needs to be fixed 
And I think that there's a lot of that. There's a whole industry around that, right? Um, and even self-improvement. I mean, I think we're always improving and continuously improving, but I think that the, the idea that if we're not, what we're feeling or what we're experiencing isn't okay as it is, if it's messy or if it's magical, that I think is a big, it, for me personally, it's a big roadblock. If I don't hit that acceptance speed bump after the awareness speed bump, then I'm likely to come around the block and hit that first speed bump again and again and again. Yeah, absolutely. That That is a um, beautiful metaphor and such a vitally critical part of being in right relationship with ourselves is is not trying to transform what we're experiencing or um, coerce ourselves into thinking about things differently or feeling differently or um, you know any number of um, like self-manipulation tactics mm -hmm. because um, it's abusive or negligent. Mm -hmm. Either way, that's usually a repetition of the same trauma that got us into this mess anyways. Right. Or anyway. Um, when, and you know, a lot of um, people in my industry will talk about this, like reparenting yourself, where you, um, you give yourself that which many of our parents couldn't because they didn't know and they were never given it. I um, am not interested in really assigning blame to that right. cultural deficit, but where, and I see this in my own parenting of my own children, especially my daughter, because she's older, um, where sometimes her feelings are uncomfortable for me. And if I respond to that discomfort in myself, I am more, I am almost certain to try to like convince or persuade her or distract or, you know, co coerce, cajole, whatever, to try to get her to move on, mm -hmm. um, which, which happens. I do that sometimes. Thankfully, she is um, very stubborn. And so she calls me on that, like in real time, always. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so I'm able to work backward and meet my own discomfort, name that in myself, say, okay, the discomfort's okay but that's not her problem. And, and then give her permission to accept what she's feeling, differentiate between feeling and then behavior. Um, but that the feelings are fine, whatever they are, you know, that's just a part of this moment. And we can pay attention to them without, you know, throwing our plate or 
hitting our brother or whatever, you know? Right, right. There's a, a, a great Victor Frankl quote about, uh, and I, I will botch it if I attempt it, uh, but getting at the power between that time between reacting mm. or responding. And I think that that's, that's such a, a, there is so much power in that. And it's something that requires lots of practice. And it, I do, sometimes I think kids are the, actually the best about it because they, they don't, um, they feel what they feel and they let you know. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, are you familiar with Tara Brock? Do you know who that is? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, she's the teacher that I learned what you described from, you know, she, she talks about, um, not judging what comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can't work with it if you judge it. Right. You can't, you can't get the information in that feeling. You can't figure out what needs attention. You can't honor the smoke signals from psyche. Right. Unless you can say, okay, this is here, period. Right, right. I mean, that's when I think back to that experience on the wisdom path, that's very much what that was for me was realizing I can't, nobody's going to win if I don't like the version of myself at home. Mm, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's going to end poorly. Yeah, we're all parties involved. Right, right. Um, you know, I'm married. I can't just constantly be living out of a suitcase and traveling around the world. Um, because I like that version of myself more. I had to learn how to integrate the two and not judge either of them. Um, Cause there are certainly times when travel me at home would be kind of a nightmare, <laughs> you know, but uh, that, that, but together they, they form the whole and without judging it and without there being shame for that it is there is freedom yes okay um i could talk to you for a long time but i want to i want to honor this sunday afternoon for both of us so i want to ask you a final question what is one thing that you wish everyone knew mm, i do love that question it's so simple, but the, I just have such a strong belief in the power of paying attention. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I likely wouldn't even advise my approach to it, but I, you, you don't have to pay attention and then go broadcast everything to the internet. <laughs> but for me, that was how it helped me stay accountable to myself. Mm. Um, but paying attention and taking the time to unpack the stories that we tell ourselves, Mm. there's just such immense power in that. And 
it, you know, it, it, the early on in the with the last the last election and with the pandemic, there there was a, a researcher who made the the statement that pay attention to the people not paying attention, and mm -hmm. it hit me hard because it it those are the people that. Um, you can pick up the the biggest trends, especially in politics and in uh, global health behaviors in a crisis. I, you know, I think that there's just enormous power in paying attention to how you feel, how things make you feel, why it makes you feel that way, um, and then just sitting with it. Hmm. You know, I've heard people talk about the power of paying attention before, but I've never thought of it like truth-telling until this conversation. Like part of what is powerful about paying attention is it's a practice of telling the truth about what you're feeling, what is happening around you, um, and that creates a kind of bridge, uh, like a connecting bridge, both inside of yourself and then, and then to all the things that matter to you outside of yourself. Right. Absolutely. And it, it, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to go all in quite in the, to the extent that I have, but it is a, it is a practice and every day gets easier. And, um, you know, I, it's, I'm not making grand discoveries about myself every single day and every minute, but there are things that come up and, you know, it's, it's been, it's been good for my marriage because we've had more candid conversations and we've even, we joke about it. I mean, this past summer, my husband and I were driving down to North Carolina uh, and it was, we'd left really early in the morning and it was maybe 1030. And he suggested that we stop to get food. And I was aghast. I thought, well, it's 1030. It's not breakfast. It's not lunch. What, what, why would we stop and get food? And he, without, you know, missing a beat, just deadpanned and looked at me and he said, you literally question everything that society tells you you're supposed to do. And yet you're gonna let it dictate when you have lunch. <laughs> and you know, it, it was funny to me that he had noticed that to the degree that I do question everything. And you know, then of course that was, it just, there's just like light examples like that where it's not always some groundbreaking discovery of self. Yeah but there are little things that are worth paying attention to. And, you know, if you're hungry, eat. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. That is so good. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. This was really fun. I could, I could talk about this all day. Thank you to Rebecca for bravely leading us into this tricky and sticky terrain where we could all maybe come out the other side feeling clearer and more courageous about telling the truth. The Hidden World is produced by David Gomez. 
Our theme song is written by David Gomez. And I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to yourselves and each other. Mm-hmm.